This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. So what did we learn from today's budget? If you've not been paying attention, there was a budget today. The Ontario Liberals, the Kathleen Wynne government, gave it what could be its final budget, what could be the beginning of a new series of budgets. A lot of what came out we already knew, of course. Uh, daycare, pharmacare, mental health spending, medical spending, tuition spending, spending in general, on and on and on. But so much it was announced is now being spent that Finance Minister Charles Souza now says if the Liberals are re-elected, Ontario will be running a deficit now until 2024, at least. Forget those ideas, those promises about balancing the budget. We are a deficit province now ad infinitum for the foreseeable future. Now, you may be a liberal supporter who thinks this budget was absolutely terrific and loves all the proposals. That's fine. Glad you're here. That's great. You may be an NDP supporter who maybe thinks it was great. A lot of it in general didn't go far enough, maybe in some ways, whatever. Glad you're here. That's cool. We don't mind. That's great. You may be a conservative supporter who thinks that this is ridiculous, uh, who thinks it's way too much. Great. Glad you're here as well. We are going to, for the next little while, whittle our conversation or try to down to one question that I could not get around. I couldn't get past as I was listening to the budget and reading about the budget and following the budget. We are already in this province $325 billion in debt. And now we are talking about an ongoing, if the Liberals are reelected, a deficit and a growing debt for the foreseeable future how do we pay for this? That is the one question that I think is the re it's a reasonable question, no matter what political stripe you are. How do we pay for this? Christine Van Gein is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She joins me now. Christine, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's just go right to that question. How do we pay for this? Well, the sad answer is that not even higher taxes will help pay for this because taxes are going up in this budget as well. The government's planning on running six deficits in a row after promising they'd balance the budget. Uh, And they're increasing taxes to help pay for it. But then they still, even with that increased tax revenue, uh, they still are not going to be able to do it. So uh, as I like to say, the deficits of today are the taxes of tomorrow. So at some point, uh, this money is going to come due and it's going to be in the form of taxes on higher taxes on the Ontario population. Well, now the government would argue, and I think Charles Souza would argue, and Kathleen Wynne would argue that if you have, for example, this now complete daycare coverage, that will allow more women to go into the workforce, which means they would say, and I think some economists would say that will allow the economy to grow, which means more tax revenue to pay that off. Are they right? Yeah, sure. There is an argument about that. But keep in mind that this $2.2 billion in funding for daycare, uh, it, it really only applies for it only applies for children age two and a half and older. And also keep in mind that this is a universal plan. So they don't care if you're a high income earner, you still get you would still be eligible for this benefit. So I think it might be better for the economy instead of having subsidized um, daycare for wealthy people paid for by low-income uh, childless people, uh, maybe make the tax rates lower for everybody, make the tax rates lower for small businesses to encourage job growth. And instead, what we see is the government's going to be mirroring those terrible small business tax changes that were implemented at the federal level and, and caused quite, um, turned out to be quite unpopular. The government's going to be mirroring, mirroring those. 
and it's going to result in about a $350 million increase over three years to small businesses and their tax rates. Let me take one second here to pick on one scab that drives me nuts always, regardless of which government is in place, but this particular government has done it an awful lot. Kathleen and Charles, uh, Kathleen Wynne and Charles Souza today repeatedly talked about free pharmacare, free daycare, free tuition, and unless the pharmacare pharmaceutical companies are now giving their products to the people of Ontario for free, and unless daycare workers are vo- planning to volunteer their time, and unless professors are now working for the love of it and not expecting a paycheck, this is not actually for free. We're being told it's free. It's not free. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because it, it drives me as crazy as it drives you. Uh, of course, it's not free. It's paid for by higher taxes that we're going to be paying in Ontario. Uh, some of those higher taxes are now going to be applied to people earning $71,500 salaries per year. Uh, those people are going to see their taxes go up. Um, this is as a result of a change to how something called the surtax on personal income tax in Ontario is calculated. So there will be a middle tax, ca- uh, middle class tax increase in Ontario that will cost about $275 million next year. And that's to pay for all these so-called free programs that the government's giving away in the run-up to an election. But I heard so many people in the last few days talking about free and saying it's going to be free, and I wanted to, whether you love the Liberals or not, I wanted to just grab some people by the hair and say, you do understand that it has to be paid for somewhere. And that's why I keep coming back to this question. How do we pay for this? Because it's not free. Well, the government's planning on paying for it by putting more debt on your children and your grandchildren, because they're planning on running six consecutive deficits. Uh, Six deficits will take them past their next term. So if they're elected uh, in June, if they're re-elected in June, they're going to be re-elected on the basis that they never have to balance the budget in their next mandate. Uh, and, And really, that means the taxes for your children, the taxes for your grandchildren will all have to go up to pay for the spending that we're spending today for these so-called free programs. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Christine Van Gein, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about the budget today. And right before the break, Christine, you were mentioning that this is debt that is going to be passed on to our kids and our grandkids. And yet I'm looking at this poll that I've found uh, by, uh, who's it, by H&K Strategies. It's an online poll. Only 26, according to this, only 26% of Ontarians disagree with the premise that government should run a deficit to increase spending on health and social services. This obviously is something people, many people are willing to buy in and say, sure, load up the debt. I don't care as long as we get the services we want. Um, yeah, so I think it, oh, it depends on the poll, right? There was a poll that came out from Abacus, uh, I think, two weeks ago. It was on federal issues, but the number one issue for at the federal level for Canada as a whole was that the, the people wanted the government to get the deficit under control, to get spending under control, and, ba- and to balance the budget. So it kind of def- depends on how you phrase the question. If you, if you premise it with, um, should we pay for social services? Um, people are more likely to say yes. But if you premise the question to say something more like, should the government balance the budget, more people are likely to say, to say I agree with that statement. Right. And there was another one, as you're talking about, by Chorus, uh, Chorus, not the radio station Chorus, Chorus, that Bill Morneau's own staff pr- took out. And they also said that uh, the internal polling said Canada Canadians want Ottawa to not be running deficits. So you're right. It goes either way. Okay. So I always hear, though, Christine, when talking to someone who's in the public sector, especially in government, 
that when I use an example of or a comparison to your household, running your household, and how a household runs its budget compared to a government, I'm always told that's not a fair comparison. It's not right. It doesn't work. It's too simplistic. And I've never been able to understand why that's a bad comparison, because if I was running a household with this kind of debt, I'd be out of my mind. Um, Yeah, I think the reason people don't compare it to households is because of um, of capital expenses. So the governments invest in things, right? They invest in roads and bridges um, that are supposed to create a return on uh, on on things. But a lot of the the way government does accounting ex- excludes capital expenses from the calculations. So um, really, I think that it, it remains a, an appropriate comparison to say that. Um, that, that this is an appropriate comparison. I, I actually don't like the comparison between um, paying debt and, um, and and a mortgage on your house because at the end of the day, when you've paid off the mortgage on your house, you have an asset that you can sell, whereas um, when it comes to roads and bridges and things like that, you, you don't. So it's borrowing for, for something that they're calling an investment, but it, it, it's not a saleable asset. Well, and many of the things that were proposed today are things that are not going to end up with a capital thing at the end. It, it is money that is just in perpetuity flowing out to pay for these programs yeah, over and over Yeah, it's program spending. It's program spending and salaries for government workers. So here, here's the question, and, and again, I come back to this question. How are we going to pay for this? Leaving aside whether people love or don't love these programs, I think it's a very fair question. Regardless of what political stripe you are, how are we going to pay for this? What happens when the day comes that we do have to pay? Because clearly right now we're able to just load up the debt, but eventually I would assume that someone is going to come and ask to be paid for all this money we've borrowed. What happens then? Yeah, so the government justifies this by saying interest rates are low right now, and uh, they have been historically low in the past few years, but about f- they're, they're increasing now. And in the next t- government term, about 40% of the existing debt will um, sort of roll over and need to be reissued, and it will be reissued at a higher interest rate. So when that happens, the interest rate, the interest, the amount of money that the government is spending on interest rates every year, which is over $12 billion uh, this year, uh, that's going to increase. And it really is an insane situation when you have a province that's that the size of Ontario, where the fourth, fourth largest expense of the province is interest on debt. That's not benefiting anybody. That's not building a road. That's not building a bridge. That's not paying a nurse's salary. That's wasted money as a result of terrible mismanagement by this government. I heard, actually, I read today, and I don't know if it's accurate, but that's more than we pay on post-secondary education in this province on a yearly basis. It's it's the fourth largest expense in, in Ontario. Last thing before I let you go, is it a ridiculous statement to point out that the daycare kids that we are now trying to put money towards right now with this budget, if we do this, will be the ones who are going to be stuck with this down the road when they finally get jobs, that they're going to be the ones, we're trying to help them apparently now, but they're going to be the ones tagged with this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly sad that the government is spending so much of these children's money uh, I, I mean, we can argue on the merits of, of daycare um, being government funded. Um, my position is that the universal application of it in Ontario is is absurd. It's absurd to have childless, low-income people subsidizing the child care of wealthy parents, which is what the proposed system will be doing. Um, and, and then the children who are benefiting from that will end up paying the cost of it 
in years to come when all of this debt comes due. Christine Van Gein from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I would argue that regardless of where your political stripe is, and again, uh, that's not what we're talking about today because there are some of these programs you may think are tremendous, and that's cool, that's fine. My one thing would be, the only question we should be asking is, how do we pay for this? And if you can come up with a satisfactory answer that you're comfortable with, that is not, we're going to dump millions and billions and whatever, hundreds of billions onto our kids and our grandkids, which is where we're heading. If you can come up with a satisfactory answer, because I can't right now, that's great for you. But this seems to me to be the underlying overriding question. I don't realize those are two opposite things, but the main question, how do we pay for this? Because I don't think we can afford it. Regardless of how the spin is put on it, I don't think we can afford it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Case was heard in Toronto this week. Criminal case. That brought with it what I think is a surprise twist. I've never heard of this before. The defense lawyers argued, as they were getting prepared for sentencing, that their Afro-Canadian client should receive special consideration in sentencing because he is black. Here's the story. Apparently, our criminal code, now many people aren't going to know this. I didn't know this. But apparently, our criminal code dictates that Indigenous people should receive special consideration in sentencing because they make up an unusually high percentage of the population in our jails. So, pointing out that there is also an unusually high percentage of Afro-Canadians in jail, the legal team argued the same standard should be applied. Here's what the Globe and Mail said about this. Lawyers Faisal Mirza and Emily Lamb, representing the, the defendant, says African Canadians like Indigenous people have faced dislocation, segregation, disproportionate rates of incarceration, and discrimination in employment and education, plus over-policing of neighborhoods and mistreatment in federal custody. Quote, in 2018, the experience of African Canadians is sufficiently unique that it is in and of itself deserving of special recognition, Mr. Mirza told the Ontario Superior Court Justice Sean Nakatsuru in Toronto. Disadvantage in the black community, he said, may diminish the moral culpability of offenders, just as it is mandatory for judges to consider an Indigenous offender's history of disadvantage. They should also be obliged to perform a similar analysis for black people. I'm asking that it become presumptively the approach for African Canadians, Mr. Mirza said. Now, this got me wondering, me, back out of the quote now, me, this got me wondering, is this an appropriate response? Is this a fair response? Or is this almost, part of it anyway, patronizing and maybe even bordering on racist? Well, let me bring in someone who knows an awful lot about this stuff. Peter Bushy is a criminal lawyer here in Hamilton. He is also a past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Mr. Bushy, thanks for doing this tonight. Not a problem, Scott. Uh, let's start at the very beginning of this, because I think a lot of people, when I read that, if they were catching it, they may have been surprised to know that we actually have, in the criminal code, enshrined in the criminal code, special sentencing considerations for Indigenous people. What does that actually mean? Okay, under Section 718.2 of the criminal code, um, there's a whole list of sentencing principles that judges need to go through before they sentence the accused. And one of those uh, sentencing principles, 718.2E, is that the judge uh, needs to take into consideration 
uh, all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances and consistent with the harm done to victims or the community uh, that should be considered for all offenders with a particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. So sensitivity to our First Nations people is, is actually codified uh, in the criminal code. And the case law notes that courts must, must take judicial notice of such matters as the history of colonialism, displacement, and residential schools, and how that history continues to translate into lower educational attainment, lower incomes, higher unemployment, higher rates of substance abuse and suicide, and higher levels of incarceration for uh, Aboriginal uh, people. So that's that's the law of the land. It's codified. And uh, if I have an Aboriginal uh, client who's being sentenced, which some of my colleagues do, uh, sometimes, um, or uh, most of us oftentimes, will ask for a GLADU report, which is a special type of pre-sentence report that analyzes uh, the history of the um, uh, particular accused, um, where he grew up, what nation he's from, what reserve he grew up on, for example. Is this guaranteed uh, yeah. that there will be a reduced sentence, or if a because there yeah. are there are some First Nations people who have had a I don't want to say privileged, but have had a fine life, and others have had very difficult times. Is it right across the board, or is it on an individual basis? It's still it's still in that respect individualized. That's a, that's a good question. The case law is very clear that. Um, that the, these uh, GLADU reports and this analysis should not be taken as, as a means of automatically reducing the prison sentence of Aboriginal offenders. And it's been that particular point that you raised, again, a good point, has been fleshed out in further case law, which notes that the more violent and serious the offense, the more likely, as a practical matter, that the appropriate sentence will not differ as between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal offenders. So it's certainly uh, it's certainly still individualized in that respect. Yeah. So theoretically, though, potentially, if an Aboriginal and an, an Indigenous person and someone who's not Indigenous com- uh, commit the exact same crime, the sentences could end up being very different. Um, they could. They could end up. They could end up. I wouldn't use the word very. Okay. They could end up uh, being different. And there's also um, uh, there's also. Um, <clears throat> Uh, a different sentencing regime uh, for certain Aboriginal uh, offenders. So we don't have this in Hamilton, but in Brantford, there's uh, an Aboriginal uh, an Aboriginal uh, sentencing uh, regime for ab- for the Aboriginal offenders in in Brantford. Does this is there any concern among the legal community that this f- kind of flies in the face of the theory that justice is blind and that everybody is held to the same standard in the court? True. Okay, true. But the thing is, <clears throat> the horrors committed uh, against the Aboriginal people are so extensive, right? They're so extensive, and and they resulted in such uh, displacement that what the courts want to do is uh, sensitize uh, the judiciary to to the to the degree of harm, because there's this notion of intergenerational trauma, right? So. If your child was yanked from you and, and put into a residential school and then abused in a residential school, then subsequent generations are going to be suffering from that. And it's important that the courts are actually sensitive to that so, and not simply pay lip service, lip service to these uh, traumas. And this is, there's, there's also a huge you know, national or, or Canadian context to this. So the courts are very, very clear that, the, that they have to take judicial notice 
of this history of colonialism and 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 displacement. Um, you know, for for Aboriginal uh, accused persons. I mean, the incarceration incarceration rate, okay, for Aboriginals, it is close to six times the population uh, in the country. Right? Uh, the um, the, Ab- the Ab- First Nations people comprise about five percent of the of the country's population, uh, but uh, over twenty seven percent of the federal prisoners are Aboriginal. I mean, that's outrageous. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with lawyer Peter Bushy, former president of the Hamilton uh, Criminal Lawyers Association, we're chatting about an argument that special considerations, special rules, I guess, should be applied to different racial groups when it comes to sentencing based on past things done to those groups, based on high numbers of people from those racial groups that are incarcerated so, Peter, we talked about Indigenous, and that's enshrined in the char- in the uh, criminal code, that judges are that's to take correct. special consideration. Now, these lawyers in Toronto have argued the same should be applied to black defendants because there are a high number of Afro-Canadians in prison, that some of them, many of them, have had difficult backgrounds. If you've got it for one, it seems to be when you... Now, it's not the same high level in prison, I understand, but it, it seems to be, okay, well, it, this may not be the craziest thing anyone's ever said. It seems to follow a certain line of logic. Okay, the, the thing is, where, Scott, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Hamilton? In Toronto, and then I moved to Hamilton when I was 19. Okay, okay, so you're familiar with uh, Regent Park and the James Finch Court. Very, very right? familiar, yes. Okay, so I started out uh, practicing law. I article with... Um, this lawyer, uh, James Locke here, who represented a lot of black accused from Regent Park and Jane Finch. And the number of cases that involved uh, police biases um, it was as absolutely remarkable. So when Faisal Mirza makes this point um, that, like Indigenous people, uh, the black community has faced dislocation, segregation, over-policing of neighborhoods, and, um, and mistreatment in federal custody, this is based on social science, right? So, for example, just for, for, for example, when I'm doing a jury trial, uh, if I have a black client, right, or an Aboriginal or an Aboriginal client, and say the the, uh, the the complainant is white, as defense lawyers, we ask what's called the Parks question because we don't want bias. We don't want jurors to be biased, uh, in, in particularly when there's um, different races involved. The criminal code uh, notes that a juror is not, in their language, is not to be indifferent between the queen and the and the queen and the accused. So, so, so my point, and I, I completely uh, agree with uh, Faisal's argument before um, uh, the judge here. My point is that if defense lawyers are routinely, and in fact, I would be, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's my duty to ask this defense lawyer, but if defense lawyers routinely ask prospective jurors about potential bias because they're accused are, the accused are black, right? Then, then why shouldn't then uh, the, 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 uh, the history of, of the blacks people uh, become, uh, and, and sensitivity to that, become the presumptive approach uh, in our Canadian sentencing, uh, Canadian sentencing regime? So, for example, if I'm picking a jury, the question would be, for example, would your ability to judge the evidence in the case without bias, prejudice, or partiality be affected by the fact that the person charged is black and one of the alleged victims is white? That's a regular question we ask for black people, black accused, and aboriginals. And the reason the, reason the courts have recognized that, and this is based, again, on social 
science and 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 um, uh, academic articles, particularly by Justice Doherty back in 1993 when he when he when he wrote the uh, uh, Parks decision on the court, this is an Ontario Court of Appeal decision. The reasoning is <clears throat> the reasoning is that like the Aboriginal community, the the Black community is actually overrepresented in our prisons, close to 300, uh, 300%, right? Uh, there were three, three times, sorry. So, they, so the black community is about 3% of the population, and approximately 9% of the federal prisoners are black. And the, the, the degree of poverty in these black communities and the, and, and the, and the, and the hope-killing experiences that a lot of our black clients have gone through is directly linked, directly linked, as with the Aboriginal uh, communities' experience, with uh, with behavior that uh, that um, crosses um, you know the legal boundaries. So I think this is a great this is a great point. That, okay, that this and Peter, you you just paint you've just made a great case for this. I mean, obviously you're a lawyer, you're a good lawyer. You just made a good case for this. There's one thing though that when I was reading this story in the Globe that really stood out to me. What you just argued, I, I that makes great sense. When the lawyers, pardon me, said um, that the circumstances could diminish moral culpability, though, that's the one that I'm struggling with. As far as background, as far as things like that and, and, and bias... Uh, absolutely, but the idea that they're saying somehow that a black person has less moral culpability to me suggests that they can't understand the wrongness of what they've done, and I think that's patronizing, quite frankly. I think that part makes black or Afro-Canadians sound like they're not intelligent enough, and that's not the case. We know that's not the case. Okay, that's First of all, that's, that's a good point, because that phrase, uh, moral culpability, is never used in the case law when discussing... Um, you know, uh, uh, considerations uh, for um, for our, our Aboriginal clients. So uh, that that that's a point that that's that's well that's well made. Yeah, I, that I that think, one that one threw me off. Uh, to be honest with you, the rest of it it makes good sense. That part to say that somehow the suggestion they can't understand or don't get that what they're doing is wrong, I reject that because I don't think that they are, I don't think that Afro-Canadians are stupid or not capable of understanding the law or what's right and wrong. I don't believe that. Right. I don't think, I don't think that, that see, I, I've got it, I should order the transcript and, re, and review uh, Faisal's submissions, but I don't, my sense is that might have not been the best use of uh, words because I think at the, at the bottom line, his argument is that just as it's mandatory for judges to consider an Indigenous offender's history as a disadvantage, so should it be mandatory to perform a similar analysis for black people. And if we agree on that, uh, I think that would be very helpful for, um, for, for uh, Lady Justice. Peter Bushy, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this fascinating stuff. My pleasure. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting discussion, for sure. I'd love to hear what you think about this. Radley at 900CHML.com. He does paint an interesting argument, for sure. He makes a very interesting argument. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. It is time for our weekly feature, Ben's Story of the Day. Here's what we do. Ben is, you can't see Ben because, well, if you're really talented, maybe, but this is radio, that would be tricky. Ben is the guy who presses all the buttons and makes sure we are on the air. He takes the phone calls, he starts the music, he does all that kind of stuff. Every week, once a week... I will bring three of the most ludicrous stories of the week, and Ben has to choose which one is his choice as story of the day. It probably should be called story of the week because we only do it once a week, but 
Some poor planning in the naming department makes it Ben's story of the day. Here we go. Story number one comes to us from Sutherland, Oregon, where a 37-year-old guy with a, a name that I just love, Jedediah Ezekiel Fulton. Jedediah Ezekiel Fulton went to McDonald's apparently with quite a hunger the other night. He was he had some serious hunger pangs going. Uh, it does not say whether there was any alcohol or other stuff involved here. Although, with the order that he put in, I'm guessing munchies may have been involved. I don't know. Nonetheless, Jedediah went to the front counter and ordered 30 double cheeseburgers. Jedediah had a man-sized hunger going. And the workers there, I guess, either decided they were too busy or they didn't like Jedediah or they thought it was a prank or something. And so they refused to make the 30 double cheeseburgers. And Jedediah, he lost it! He lost his mind! Couldn't get his 30 cheeseburgers. So Jedediah... Uh, first of all, he destroyed a banner that was hanging in the restaurant. Well, that's, you know, that's just a start because then he somehow shimmied up a pole and began destroying the golden arches that were hanging over the restaurant. By the time police arrived, the arches had been essentially demolished and he was charged with disorderly conduct all because he couldn't get 30 double cheeseburgers. Now, I'd be amazed if he could have downed 30 double cheeseburgers. Nonetheless, that is story number one. Jedediah, who got mad at McDonald's and broke their arches. Story number two comes to us from Bangladesh, where a guy has been detained by police after he he lost a bet, a large bet, on a cricket match. Cricket is very popular over there. He lost a large bet on a cricket match, didn't want to have to pay the bet, So he faked his own death on social media so that the person to whom he owed the money now would see that he was in fact gone and would no longer come collecting. So what he did, he used fresh red juice as imitation blood. Somehow he got a film makeup artist to make him up and look like his throat had been slit. And had a picture or pictures taken or video, I'm not sure which, which were taken of him lying on the ground with a slit throat and blood everywhere. It was quite a scene, apparently. And had it sent to the person to whom he owed all this money. Here was the fly in the fake death ointment. Who do you think sent the photo (laughs) to the person? Mr. Deadman himself sent the photo on social media by text that would cause some to wonder if maybe this something was askew. I really hope that there was a caption or some message that went along with this. That said, I am dead. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, bud. Can't pay the debt. Sorry, Kinda I'm gone. dead. Yeah, that is story number two. The man who faked his own death but then sent the photo and the note on social media to the person to let him know that I can't pay because I'm dead. And story number three. And this one... I'm sorry, I know they're on, it's either Arts, uh, A&E or TLC or one of those show, one of those channels that once upon a time showed high quality educational good stuff. I mean, TLC was the learning channel. And I remember once upon a time in the old days when they used to have the operation and it was, you know, I mean, you would watch an actual operation and learn about organs and things like that. And A&E, I mean, arts and entertainment, you it used to be arts and entertainment. Well, now 
It's got little people and tall people and families with 700 people in it and people who are 700 pounds and on and on. Well, one of the things, there's actually a show on there so about this. So I know this isn't all that unique anymore is my long way of getting into this story. I know this is not really that strange a story, but I still am amazed by it. A woman in Pensacola, Florida woke up thinking that the General Sow's chicken that she'd had for dinner had gone bad and it was causing her to have severe abdominal pain. She thought that the chicken was doing her in, but it wasn't the chicken because three hours later she gave birth to a 19-inch, five-pound son that she never knew she was carrying. This woman was pregnant and never knew it. So many questions every time this happens. How do you possibly not know you're pregnant? How do you possibly put on that weight, feel or don't feel or whatever the kick? What do you think that kicking is inside your abdomen? I have not been pregnant. Shocker. My wife has though. I've been there. I've seen legs and arms pushing her belly. Things are, what do you think is going on in there? How bad is your gas that you think that that is being caused by gas? Anyway, we have the, Woman, 29-year-old Crystal Gale Amerson. I don't know if she's any relation to Archie Amerson, former Ticat. I'll look that one up. Wouldn't that be a quick twist to the story if it turned out it was a former Ticat connection? You have the woman who gave birth without knowing it. You have the man who, quote, quote, committed suicide and then sent his own suicide note after he was dead to the guy he owed the money to. Or you have the man who couldn't get his 30 double cheeseburgers and destroyed the golden arches. Which, Ben, is your story of the day? The man who worked up quite the appetite but wasn't able to have the company actually make his food. You got to hate it when you need, you need 30 double cheeseburgers and you can't get them. That is Ben's story of the day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Many of you understand or have experienced or have seen or watched or read or followed a football combine. The CFL's version, the NFL's version, they are an interesting animal. Essentially, all the top players who may be drafted, who are free agents, who are not yet chosen, are brought together into... Probably the simplest description would be a meat market of sorts. And they are tested and poked and prodded. And they are basically examined to see if they are any good at running and jumping and other physical things that might indicate that they would be an athlete. Scouts watch everything and then race back to their team and make recommendations about who they should draft based on who did really well at this thing. That is the most simplified explanation I can give. Last week, the CFL held its annual combine, and when it was all done, McMaster receiver Dan Peterman had really stolen the show. He ran the fastest 40-yard dash, did it in 4.54 seconds. He tied for first in the vertical jump, 39 inches, and he was third in the three-cone drill, which is a bit of a mini obstacle course, for lack of a better description, uh, did that in 7.03 seconds. So what does all of this mean? Well, let's ask him. Dan Peterman from McMaster joins me now. Sir, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, Dan Peterman is also McMaster's all-time leading receptions leader, a guy who's caught more passes than anyone else. That's a good thing to have on your resume, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's good. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's awesome knowing the receivers that have come out of there, so it's it's nice. When I saw you several weeks ago, I don't remember how long ago, walking on campus, I don't know if it was before volleyball or whatever, I, uh, I asked you, since you were just sort of meandering along, if you shouldn't have been working out or something to get ready for the combine. Apparently you were. You did uh, really unbelievably well. Congratulations. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I was just working out at SST with Steve Bodanis and Mike Montoya and me and, and my roommate, like my teammate, Eric Mez, we were all both working out there and we worked hard. What, for, for you, when uh, lots of people have different opinions of the combine. For you, what does the combine mean? Um, well, the testing part, just to see who has the most just like raw athleticism. And then when you go onto the field, if you can put that athleticism into a football sense and make plays. Did you know you were that fast? I mean, you know you're fast, but did you know you were the fastest guy of your year coming out? Did you expect that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was expecting <laughs> uh, a fast time. Like I knew from the East-West Bowl, there was only a couple guys that would be uh, close to me or in my range. So I knew I was going to be, I was confident that I was going to be at the top. Do you time yourself before you go? Like, do you do you want to know what your time is going to be before you arrive there to see how competitive you'll be? Uh, we didn't really, the way we trained, we didn't time our full 40s. We just did uh, the 10s and the 20s more so. Um, and you kind of have an idea off those numbers of if you've gotten better since last year and, and whatnot. And is that because you, it's the first step or the first couple steps that really determine how quick you're going to be? Yeah, like the the 10 yards is probably the most important, and you can probably improve the most on that, on like the first part. So, yeah, just going off that, you can tell if you're going to have a faster time. How how long had you prepared for this? I mean, had you taken any time off after the season, or was Uh, it right through? After the season, I took two two weeks off, maybe a week and a half, and then we, we pretty much started, me and Eric, and going to SST and athletics, sorry. I mean, it really means no break. Your your body must be, even though it's not football that you're playing, I mean, you're doing things to prepare for football, it must be just a grind all the time to be going after this all the time. Uh, yeah, it, you you get you definitely get tired and sore a lot, but uh, that's why you got to take your recovery seriously and eat better and make sure you're in the ice bath and all that and getting checked out. That's probably just as important as the workouts. All right, so here's the part I always find puzzling about the Combine, and you may or may not share this view. Uh, That's fine either way. You have had a wonderful career at Mac. You had four years, as I say, all-time receptions leader, tons of touchdowns, you won a lot of games, you hold school records, on and on and on. Clearly, you are an exceptional football player. So why did we need a 40-yard dash and a vertical leap to tell us that you were a great football player? Uh, I don't know. I I think (laughs) coaches... I mean, when you get to the next level, you got to have, I guess, you got to have something, right? Some type of athleticism, whether it be like strength or quickness or something. So I guess they just want to see what kind of athlete you are and and what they can do and if you can grow and what your potential is, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, you know what? I've always thought, like, if you want to know if I can play, watch my game film. There's lots yeah. of them. If I can play yeah. football, I can play football. Absolutely, yeah. And... I think that's why our combine's awesome. They they we actually get the pads on, unlike uh, like the NFL and stuff. We go one on ones, but uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, for the most part, they go back to the tape. They just it's more com- confirmation for coaches, I guess, like mm. what your tape is compared to what you athletically did in the testing. It's got to be pretty stressful, though, I would think, because you've had four years to build your resume and to show what you can do, and then you have less than five seconds to potentially screw the whole thing up if you have a really bad combo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. Like, I've been training every, almost every day for the last, since December, 
and you like one bad slip or something and you could screw it up and that's the whole uh point of it i guess to go through the stress and overcome everything do they tell you like if i understand that there were maybe some issues with the field where this was being done if someone had slipped do you get to do a redo or if you fall that's it uh i think if you like i mean i actually slipped on my my 40 but it wasn't like significant or anything i just stumbled but i'm i think they give you another chance like if you completely stumbled or something like i know on the other drills you get two chances so you can have like a mulligan or something but right. uh I'm pretty sure on the 40, if you if they felt that you slipped pretty bad or something, they'll they'll give you another chance. Do you feel that though when you're lining up for this 40 or when you're preparing to jump or whatever? Is there the the pressure? I mean, you play with pressure all the time, but this is a different kind of pressure. This is your career. This is your future. And again, it's such a small sample size. Uh yeah, no, like the nerves are definitely kicking in when you're. It's just you and you got a bunch of professional coaches sitting at the hmm. end of the 40 getting ready to time you and just if you look back and they look impressed then you know you did your thing but yeah it's pretty stressful it, it also seems odd that um you have been as i say a really really great player on one of the top teams in canada for a few years now and i don't know that i've read as much about dan peterman in four years as i have in the last week across the country now they're paying attention to you because you run one great 40 yeah no i i that's what drove me all off season. I uh, I felt that I wasn't getting the recognition I deserve. If you look at the production, I was probably the most productive U Sports receiver there, like overall over the last four years. But um, that's why that's what drove me all off season to put in, put in, put up big numbers at the combine so people can see that I'm an elite athlete. There is something else about the combine that's always uh, I've found unusual, and m- most players meet with a bunch of teams. In addition to the physical stuff, in addition to the drills you do on the field, you meet with teams, you sit down and have a discussion with them so they can get a read on you psychologically and emotionally and all that kind of stuff. You did that, right? You sat down with some yeah. teams? Yep. yep. All, all but two, I understand, right? Yes, yes. Uh, first of all, before we get to what they talked about, you didn't sit down with, I think it was BC or Saskatchewan. Do you sit there afterwards and go, why did they not want to talk to me? Or do you not worry about that stuff? Uh, like, you don't, I don't, I didn't really worry about it. You, obviously at first when you, you see the list and you go, oh, which you kind of, you kind of get a little pissed off, I guess. But, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, you gotta just roll with it, I guess. That's all. Like, I don't know if they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to talk to me. The the stories, though, are legend from past years in the NFL and the CFL. When they do sit down with you, it's as if teams and the general managers and scouts try to come up with the most insane questions they can possibly think of. Did you get any of those? I I did get a weird, uh, yeah, like you get a couple weird questions. I got, uh, like, for example, they had three donuts in a box, and they said, describe, compare yourself to one of these three donuts and say why <laughs> so it's a little you got to be creative i guess what, but, uh, what were your choices uh i don't even i remember the pl- old-fashioned plane and that's the one i said because <laughs> i'm just i just said i'm a laid-back relaxed kid but uh i don't even remember the other two donuts an old-fashioned plane all right well yeah that's, that is a weird i mean I, and that was not one they came up with on the spot you know i mean that, no, that had to be I one mean, they were working on yeah they had the donuts already there so they 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 were working on that question, yeah. Anything else, or or were most of the rest of them somewhat normal? Uh, they were somewhat normal, yeah. Like you get you get a couple 
questions. Like I got a question if I hated any teammates, but uh, for the most part, <laughs> everything was normal. Do, do I ask you for the answer to that one? No, I, I just said I just said no. I don't like talking bad about teammates. It is. Um... <laughs> They must also, though, ask, because I mean, they are trying to find out who you are. They must ask about your good moments. They must ask about your bad moments as well, do they? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, and a lot of, yeah, like they, uh, for me, it was like a body language thing, so they specifically asked, uh, like, how I tried to improve that, and they, they bring up low, like, games, like, what happened in this game, like, all that, so you have to, you just kind of got to be honest and own on what you put on tape and accept that it was a mistake or just a bad day. I am assuming, and this is a stupid question, I understand, but I'm assuming by the fact that you've worked out since the end of the season and you've gone to the combine and put so much into this, that this has been your dream to play professional football. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Forever? Forever? Like when did you start Uh, thinking this was what you wanted to do? Football was the last sport I played. So it wasn't really till high school, like grade 12, grade 11 or 12 that, uh, I was just like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with football, and in that sense, then it was my dream. And when did you start to think that it might actually be realistic? Um, I just after my rookie year, I won OUA Rookie of the Year, and I knew athletically. I I saw guys like in my, in, like I saw older guys going to the draft, and I knew that like athletically, I could definitely do it. So since since early in my career. It probably helps that you've gone to a school that has put guys into the pros yeah, before. You've seen what that level is. That's one of the reasons why I committed here. Uh, Potasic and Knox being here, obviously those guys both played pro. Um, they know a lot of the coaches. They know what it takes to get there. So that was definitely w- one of the major reasons uh, uh, going to McMaster. I knew they would prepare me for the next level the best. So, Dan, what do you do now? I mean, you, th- this is now done. Do you just sit and wait for, I mean, work out still, but do you just get ready yeah. for the draft? I mean, I'm going to, I've been taking this week off, and then, yeah, I'm going to start working out again, and then you just pretty much wait till the draft and see what happens, see where you're going. So many athletes, one of the things that they hate is something being completely out of their control because all of your preparation is so that things are in your control. Yeah. Is that a killer when you, I mean, you haven't gone through it yet, but will you be a guy who sits there very casually and calmly watching the draft? Because this is one that you can't have any control over at all. Or are you going to sit there chewing your fingernails down to the nub watching who takes um, you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty calm. I'll be, I'll be okay. Cause I know <laughs> I can't control who takes me. So I'm pretty calm, but I know my uh, family, especially my mother, they'll be, uh, they'll be very nervous. And will you be so, watching with them, or do you let uh, them suffer by themselves and no, hang out I'll, with I'll your friend? I'll watch with them, but, uh, I mean, they're going to, I know they're going to be nervous, nervous very much so. So, I mean, I don't know. Well, they're listen, gonna have to deal with it, they're yeah. going to have to deal with it. Well, I'm yeah. sure they've been nervous watching you play before, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They get Especially used to my it. my mom. You've broken yeah, them so. in. Uh, Dan yeah. Peterman, the guy, McMaster receiver, the guy who stole the show at the Combine this last weekend. Best performance of anybody there. Dan, listen, congratulations. That's, uh, it was terrific, and uh, we'll be watching now to see what happens with you next. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. Dan Peterman, McMaster's all-time leading receiver and a guy you'll be seeing, I would expect, in the CFL. I, I mean, I can't imagine not in the CFL this year, next year. Not sure when, but soon. Those combines, I tell you, 
I've never understood. I'm going to go back to that point. I, I understand what Dan said, that they just want to be able to confirm, but I've never understood how guys seem to leap up in the draft rankings after a good combine. So you have four and a half seconds to run a 40. And we're talking, the difference is sometimes hundreds of a second, but you have a good one run of 40 meters, 40 yards, and a few other exercises, and suddenly now teams are like, oh man, we got to get him. And it's like, well, what happened to the four years of game film you watched? I'd be a little more interested in seeing how you play football rather than how you do a bench press. Just saying, I... Not every guy who bench presses a bunch of times can be a good player. Don't have the aptitude, don't have the natural talent, don't have the understanding. I want to take the guy who's actually just a really good football player on the field. Now, if he shows up and is completely useless, well, even then, if he's great on the field, I want to take a longer look. But I've never quite understood this whole combine thing, but they, boy, it, it, is, uh, it turns into something. It has become a huge, huge event now. And guys can make their, I mean, it's amazing. They can make their draft by having a good day. Dan was already there before. He just helped himself a little bit. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.